Well, one of the best cards to have when you're playing Monopoly is the infamous get-out-of-jail-free card. You traverse the properties with a little more spring in your step when you know you have that card in your back pocket, right? It works great in Monopoly, not so great in the game of life. And I mean the actual game of life, as a Minnesota man discovered recently. He was pulled over by police because he was not wearing his seatbelt, because he was driving a car that was registered to someone with a warrant, and because he himself was wanted. And when the police searched him, he whipped out his get-out-of-jail-free card, to which the cops got a really big old belly laugh and proceeded to throw him into jail. And later they posted on social media, thanks for the laugh, you get an A for effort. Now, the get-out-of-jail-free card did not work for him. But I'm here to tell you that it does work for you. Because if you're a real Christian in this room, you have a bona fide get-out-of-jail-free card that you have at your fingertips, that you have access to every single day of your life. You will never be considered guilty. You will be exonerated of every crime that you've committed against a holy God from now all the way until you take your last breath. Yours is always guaranteed to work because yours is handwritten in the blood of Jesus Christ. And no one's ever going to take it away from you. And no one's ever going to laugh in your face when you hand it over. You're secure forever in that truth. But I can tell you that you have that card in your possession for one reason only. You walk free from every sin because God is merciful and God is gracious. And because he forgives you and me and everyone else who trusts in him. He cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. And he did the same for the Israelites today in Exodus 34. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. I like it when I actually see the Bibles open or the devices up. We find ourselves today in the aftermath of the golden calf that Bethany told us about last time. Sin had been pointed out. Discipline had been given. But there was one element that had yet to be fully resolved. And it was actually the most important element of all. That it was the element of forgiveness. That's what we're going to see in today's passage. Sin being identified and discipline being meted out, that's a very good start. But it's not enough. The debt that is incurred must be released. It has to be forgiven. Today, God's going to show us that not only did he do that for the Israelites, but he has the power and grace to do it for us as well. Now, Israel has sinned big time here. You remember the golden calf? Um, I'm not quite sure, but they just had to have a physical representation of God. And if you really think about it, it's kind of ironic because they already had one, two, three. They actually had three, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, and a volcano that was raging over their head while they were camped at the bottom of Mount Sinai. But they just had to do it their own way, and so they wanted a God of their own imagination fashioned for them. And God came down and dealt with them the last time we were here. But when the discipline was over, 
the relationship they had with God was still damaged. There was still a strain between them because that all-important element of forgiveness had not been fully realized. The most obvious evidence of this issue is the literal distance that God put between them. Because at this point, he's telling them multiple times in chapter 32, 33, 34, he tells them, I am no longer going to go with you to the promised land. Oh. One example of it is in chapter 33, if you look up, this is not today's text. Just one example. God tells Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on their ornaments. This was terrible news. God's not going with them. What? God's not going with us. They, they had no king. They had no president. This was a theocracy. That means God was in charge. He was their leader. He was their protector. He was their miracle worker. And he's going to sub in an angel for him? He's not coming? They're completely freaked out, as we would be if we were in their shoes. They needed the distance to be bridged, the relationship to be restored, and the forgiveness to be given. And so begins a series of back and forths. Today was, I don't know, when you did your study, it was sometimes kind of hard to follow. There's just a lot of back and forth talking in different locations between God and Moses. Um, but when you think about it, this back and forth talking, it actually makes sense. Because when you sin and blow it, and you're disciplined for it, what do you want to do? You want to FaceTime with Jesus and make sure everything's okay between the two of you, right? You want that time, just like your kids do. If you have a discipline session with them, they want some, like, snuggle time on the sofa after they've had their spanking. They want to make sure everything's okay. And so Moses starts this back and forth with God, is everything okay kind of discussion. And that's why he sends up that tent of meeting outside the camp, because God said, I'm no longer going to be with you. So he can talk to him back and forth. He, of course, wants God to go with them, but he also wants to know more about God and his ways, he says. And in answer to that question, we have our text for today, just five verses plucked, a gem plucked out of this whole dialogue. Chapter 34, verse 5 says, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. God's like pulling the curtain back and showing us who he really is right here. And he's going to end up giving them the greatest gift that any person could ever receive in these attributes, at this moment, the gift of forgiveness. They're forgiven just like you and I are, 
not because of anything that we have done, only because of who he is. They were restored to his good graces that day, and we are given the same opportunity. So don't miss this, ladies. Not only does God provide us with the forgiveness that takes us to heaven, but he provides us with the forgiveness every single day of our lives for every offense we have against him, if we would just ask. Now, in these chapters, Moses seems to need a little reassurance. It was kind of between the lines, but I'm not sure if you noticed that, but he seems a little unsettled, a little uneasy. There's lots of back and forth here, and we get it. The Israelites are again questioning his ability. I mean, think of it. They even blamed him for the golden calf last week. They said, hey, Aaron, make us a god because that guy who's in charge, we don't even know where he is or when he's coming back. That's how the whole thing was set up. They were blaming Moses. We need a god because he's gone. But I think it's more than that because they've criticized him a lot. I think the huge toughest blow that Moses was reeling from and why he needed reassurance is because God said, I'm not going with you. It was like, I, I can do anything, but if you don't go with me, we're in serious trouble. He needs some alone time with God. It's in these moments that God reassures Moses and tells him how important he is. He tells him how special he is and how you're the one I talk to face to faith face. It actually is, means mouth to mouth. And as much as we like to say we enjoy a close relationship with God, which we do through the Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus and what he did first, I get all that. But the way he talked to Moses was like you going to lunch with a friend. Like you could literally hear God and Moses talking back and forth. That was different. Moses was special. And in fact, Moses then says, show me your glory, Right? And God says, okay, okay, I'll put you in a crevice of the rock, put my hand over you to protect you, and then you can see me from the back. And all of these things seem to reassure Moses. And in the end, God agrees to go with them. When Moses reminds him, we are your people, and you are what makes us distinct and different from others. Well, Moses just doesn't want him to go, though. Moses wants to know him. And so in verse 6 and 7, God is going to tell him about himself. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Moses is given a feast of good stuff here. I am merciful. I am gracious. I'm forgiving. There's nothing better that he could have given us here. And that means the only appropriate response we should have is point number one, be grateful. God forgives sin graciously. Be grateful. God forgives sin graciously. Without God being who he really is, we have no hope, and neither did they. But God is going to fully and completely restore them and forgive them here even after the golden calf, because he's gracious. Now, how do we know he forgives? Well, we know he forgives because he turned to Moses and he said, make two more tablets. In other words, I'm going to give you a do-over. 
When Moses had walked down and heard them parting around the golden calf, remember Moses took those two tablets that God had cut out and written on, and he slammed them to the ground and he broke them. Those broken tablets on the ground were a sign of the broken covenant that the Israelites had broken with God. But God says, go get two more tablets. We'll let you start over. And he restates a bunch of the commandments up on Mount Sinai, and he, God, reinstates his commitment to the covenant that he made to them. This is huge. It's a fresh start. But what did he reveal exactly when it says he proclaimed the name of God? He told us more here than he's ever said about himself. I know there's not a ton of the Bible before you get to Exodus 34, but I skimmed through it. I wouldn't say it was a scientific dive, but I found three examples, only three examples, when God talks about himself with an attribute, with a descriptor like this. In Genesis 17, he calls himself God Almighty. That's when Abraham is circumcised as a sign of the covenant. Exodus 3, he calls himself the I Am, or the self-existent one at the golden, or excuse me, the burning bush. And Exodus 20, at the Ten Commandments, he describes himself as jealous. That's it. Now, we know a lot about him because other people have described him. Throughout the book of Genesis, people call him the God Most High, the God who sees me, the judge of all the earth, the God of heaven. And we know things about him. We know, for instance, he's omniscient. One of the reasons we know he's omniscient is because he said he could see the sufferings of the children of Israel in Egypt for those 400 years. Well, he has to be omniscient, right? We also know he's holy because, hey, at the burning bush, he said the ground's holy. You got to take your shoes off, Moses. And we also saw that he is, of course, omnipotent or all-powerful, or he could never have done the plagues, the Red Sea. So we do know some things about him. This is the first time God's going to open his mouth and go, here's all these things about me, all this great stuff. Now, the ones he chose, this is not an accident. He didn't say, I'm sovereign and I'm eternal. Every single one of these relates to the event that's happening here, the golden calf and their need for forgiveness. Everything he reveals about himself, right? They're super familiar words to you. The reason why is because they're quoted seven times in your Bible. These words that God reveals about himself, these attributes here, it happens again and again and again in your Old Testament. But this is the first time. This is the first time these people have heard these words. And can you imagine? Put yourself in their shoes. They knew very little about God, except he's some big, amazing guy that's, that volcano's going up there. And you see this and you realize he's better than I ever imagined him to be. So what did he say about himself? The list. He says he's merciful. That means he's full of sympathy and compassion. And he doesn't give people what they deserve. It says he's gracious. That's also compassion. But this time, it's got an edge of kindness and generosity. This is him giving us good that we didn't earn. He says he's slow to anger. That means he's full of patience. It means God has a very long fuse and he doesn't get angry easily. It also means that he gets over it quickly. 
It says he's abounding in steadfast love. That means he overflows with this never-ending, unfailing love, affection, and commitment to his people. Then it says he's full of faithfulness. It means he's reliable and true. He can always be trusted. No matter how men might fail us. Then he says that he has given his faithful love to thousands. That means that there's an infinite number of people throughout time and history that he has poured this unfailing love on. <clears throat> Best of all, he says, his love comes with complete forgiveness or pardon for our iniquity. That's the crooked or twisted decisions and choices we've made. For transgression, that's the rebellion we have engaged in. And sin, it's every other offense that we commit. All of this, seeing all of this, mercy, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, forgiveness, it only serves to remind us that if God had said, I am holy, I am just, and I am righteous, if those are the words that came out of his mouth here, we would have no hope. It's only because of these words that he forgives us and always takes us back. Because of who he is, the Israelites would no longer be punished. They've gotten what they needed to get, but they're done. What a relief that must have been. God promises in places like Psalm 51, 1, according to his steadfast love and abundant mercy, he will blot out our transgressions. Psalm 51, 1. Psalm 130, 3 and 4 says it like this. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Psalm 133 and 4. Now, there are lots of sins that we could commit. Worry, fear, anger, laziness, neglect, stealing, lying. But being unfaithful to God, not loving him first and most, is the most heinous sin we could commit against him. It's called idolatry, but we like to say that, oh yeah, well, that's what those people did. But when we don't love him first, we're being unfaithful to him. It's like you sitting down with your husband at the kitchen table someday and saying, I don't love you anymore. You've committed yourself publicly to him You've said you'll be with him till death do you part. You've said you'll be faithful only to him alone and no other guy till you take your last breath. When you developed a relationship with God, you made that same kind of commitment. You surrendered your life to follow him. You married him, and he brought you into his home and into his family. In fact, so much so that God calls what they did at the golden calf cheating. In this very passage, if you read between the lines, when he talks about the commandments again, he talks about how when they don't worship him first, they're committing basically prostitution and adultery. This is frankly exactly what they had just done. They were cheating on him. And 
you can see why God being so forgiving here is such a big deal. They've broken the first four commandments all at once because they didn't love him first and most. And he still says to them, I love you. I forgive you. And I'll take you back. Let's go home. That's what he's saying here. He gave them precious forgiveness without reluctance, without hesitation, because of who he is. I know that you love and appreciate the forgiveness of God. I know you're grateful for the day that he opened your eyes to your sin and made you a part of his family. And I trust that you thank him for that regularly. I trust you thank him for that in some way every day. But I want us to also remember that we need to be thanking him for all the various things that we've been forgiven since that time as well. We need to thank him that he forgives us for that outburst of anger that we had with our daughter this morning on the way to school. Or the juicy nugget that we told about someone at small group. Or the way we blew off our quiet time this morning. Or how we didn't share the gospel like we should have. Or how we undermined our husband last night at the dinner table. Or how we took a sick day when we weren't sick. Or how we worried for hours yesterday instead of trusting God. Every single one of those things is a sin that must be forgiven and, Lord willing, thanked for. We sin every single day. How thankful we are that God is merciful, gracious, patient, and all the rest. And then he takes us back again and again and again. He forgives us and he puts it behind us. Doesn't hold a grudge, but he sets us free. Psalm 103 is that great psalm that tells us to bless the Lord and it gives us a huge list of things to bless the Lord for, to praise him for, to thank him for. One of the top of the list is he forgives all our iniquities. He redeems our life from the pit and he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. There's truly no more appropriate response for the forgiveness of God than your and my gratefulness. It's what Moses did in verse 8. As soon as he heard this news that God had forgiven them, he worshiped God for it. We should be grateful too, not just because we get heaven, but because we get forgiven every day. He's quick to forgive us. How quick are we to thank him? That he doesn't give us what we deserve every day. Now, Lamentations 3.22 is probably one of our favorite verses to quote because that's the one that talks about his mercies are new every morning. New means something you didn't experience before. Mercy is you didn't get what you deserved for doing wrong. In other words, he gives you a unique stream of you don't get what you deserve every single day. Have you ever thought about how many days that is? How many days have you received that? A new stream of mercy. If you're 21, you've received over 7,000. If you're 40, over 14,000 times God has given you a new stream of mercy. If you're of a young retirement age, you've received over 23,000 of those new gifts of mercy every morning for whatever you've done wrong. Think we could be a little grateful, huh? 
for all those new mercies that we've received. Well, that's all the good stuff, but there's another side of this, obviously. The verse continues on. Yes, God is gracious, God is loving, but it doesn't mean that we should do whatever we want and take advantage of his love. Paul said in Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Our passage in Exodus 34 goes on in verse 7. It says, I keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. We covered that. But the end of verse 7 says this, but I will also by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, even though God is forgiving, he will always hold us accountable for our sin. We're not going to get away with anything. It should lead us to a very sobering point number two. Be warned, God takes sin seriously. Be warned, God takes sin seriously. God says, in this verse, I will by no means clear the guilty, which means I cannot leave sin unpunished. In Jeremiah 30, verse 11, he put it like this. I am with you to save you. I'm going to put a full end to all the other nations where I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. But I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. That was Jeremiah 30, 11. God loves his people. We just looked at it. He loves us. That's awesome. But he's also going to discipline us when we do the wrong things. He did it historically here, of course. Moses had just finished telling us that <laughs> he took the golden calf, ground it up, and made him drink it. Don't you just love Moses? I love Moses. Right on. Then he calls out the seminary students to go out and kill everybody who's been idolatrous. And then a plague comes. Nobody got away with anything here. They were disciplined for it, right? Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that because God forgives us that he winks at sin. And it's okay to just slip one in. God is warning us here with his words and his actions. And throughout the Bible, he's continually telling us he wants us to do what's right. He says things like, be holy as I am holy. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He says, my will is your sanctification. He says, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. Those are all familiar passages in your New Testament. They're all pointing to the same thing. Take sin seriously. Do the right thing. Of course, God wants us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Of course, God wants us to say uh, to sin less. He commands it. He expects it. He warns against us doing anything else here. We take sin seriously, first of all, because sin always costs. There's always a price to pay. As we say when we share the gospel, either you're going to pay for your sin or Jesus is. But someone's going to pay for every sin. After the golden calf, Moses asked God to blot his name out. In other words, he's saying, kill me so they can be saved. And that was never going to work. Even if he was a righteous man, he could only save himself. And he'd have to be perfectly righteous to save even himself. We know he wasn't. But there would be a perfect one. 
who would pay the cost for everyone, God himself. He's the only one who could do it. But he did pay for us so that we wouldn't have to pay. But someone paid. Sin costs. If he's done that for you because you've surrendered your life to Christ, there's a promise for you in Colossians 2.14. It says in Colossians 2.14 that he canceled the record of your debt by nailing it to the cross forever. Yeah, sin has to be paid for, but yours already was. It's a reason to celebrate. That's what we did in point one, but it's also a reason to restrain yourself here in point two. Another reason I think we should take sin seriously is the principle of sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. In Galatians 6, 7, it's talked about as planting seeds. Planting seeds and growing a crop, right? But if you are planting sinful actions bad consequences are going to come when that crop springs up. And those bad crops won't just affect you. We live our lives around other people. God makes sure that we have a very sober example in our passage in Exodus 34 because right in our face, he puts the most important and sobering relationship that we have. The kids and the grandkids that God has given us will see our sinful choices. And he says that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. That was also in the Ten Commandments. We talked about it last time I was here. I told you God is not saying that he's going to punish our children and grandchildren for our sinful choices, but that our sinful choices do affect them, just like those in the world who are addicts, who are abusers, who are divorcing, their children are much more apt to do those things. You're not doing that, I get it, but God still wants us to think twice about the sins we commit because they will affect our children and make our children think certain things are okay. Whether it's being anxious whether it's refusing to submit to our husbands, whether it's failing to give sacrificially to our church, whether it's loving something more than we love him, or even if it's not disciplining them correctly, all of those things have an impact on our children and grandchildren negatively. We must curtail our sin because we influence others, especially those little hearts and minds that watch us so carefully. God says here he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the kids because he wants to keep us from sin. But our choices do affect more than our children. They affect those that you partner. They affect those that you mentor. They affect those that you serve beside. They affect those that you are in small group with who hear what you share. They affect your friends. Your friends make decisions based on what they see you say and do and what you think is all right and acceptable for a Christian woman. We gotta be careful. Jesus warned in Luke 17, one, the temptations to sin are always gonna come, but just don't let them come through you, basically. And then he gave that vivid illustration, which when we go back to Capernaum, which hopefully one day we will, you have to come with us. I know it's expensive. I know it's a huge hassle, but you've got to come with us. It's the best thing you'll ever do in your life. I promise you. To walk where Jesus walked, it's worth every hassle and every hoop they make us jump through. 
when we go to Capernaum, which is the home base of Jesus. I didn't say the hometown. I said the home base of Jesus. It's sitting right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, right next to it. And we will actually stand there and look at the foundations of the synagogue where Jesus actually spoke. And then we'll walk over to Peter's house where he healed his mother-in-law of the fever. And between the two, we'll feed a gigantic cement donut. It's about 10 feet across. Google says it weighs 3,300 pounds. That's a ton and a half. And um, that's a millstone. Jesus says, if you're the one who causes somebody else to sin, you might as well have that floaty put on you and thrown into the sea. And they're standing right there by the sea of Galilee. He was a brilliant teacher, Jesus was. You don't want that anchor on you. This is a threat, pure and simple, from the mouth of Jesus about not influencing others to sin. Woo. Don't encourage others to do things because of what you have done or said or not done or not said for that matter. No one sins in a vacuum. Just like a rock thrown into water, there are ripples from our sins. Now, I could have picked lots of examples in the Bible, but I decided to pick ones that happened historically near this time. Remember Kadesh Barnea? Kadesh Barnea is the place where for hundreds of years God said, I'm going to give you the promised land. But then 12 guys went to spy it out, and 10 of them influenced all the rest to think it was a bad idea. Only two guys hung in there and said, we trust God. Everybody else was afraid. Our kids are going to die there. And the whole nation goes with those 10 people because they influenced them for bad and fear. And so God disciplined everybody <clears throat> by allowing every adult person to die. Now, I know I've probably gone too far with this, but I, I took numbers. Say it's 2 million people, right? Let's just say two-thirds of those people are in that 20 and over. Maybe that's not exactly right, but let's just think of it. Two-thirds of two million is 1.3 million people dying in 40 years. That is 600,000 a year and 55,000 a month. That means since Bethany was standing here, 24,000 of our group dead. Now, I didn't say they all died at once because there were plagues and certain things that happened. They didn't all die at a steady rate. That's a lot of discipline because those guys sinned and they influenced everybody else. And God ends up giving the land to their kids that they were so afraid were gonna die. What about when God told Moses and Aaron to speak to the rock? And because it worked before, Moses picked up his staff and hit the rock. Huh. Didn't seem like that big a deal, does it? I mean, water came out. It was a big deal to God. They dishonored God, and because of it, and you just read this, all these in your DBR, because of it, Moses and Aaron have to march up to the promised land, right to the entrance of it, and they both die. They can see the promised land, but they don't get to go in, because God is serious about sin, ladies. What about Achan? Jericho falls, but God had said, all the stuff here belongs to me. So that means I need you to walk by the piles of money, the Teslas, the Louis Vuittons, the iPhones, and leave them. And they thought they had until the next day when they walked into AI in this dinky little town and they couldn't defeat him and 36 men died because one guy stole from God. 
God takes sin seriously. Can you imagine how God would favor us here if we all policed ourselves of our sin? Now, ladies, we're fortunate to live in a time known as the age of grace, where God doesn't zap us like a bug every time we step off and do something wrong. He is patient. He's not willing for any to perish, 1 Peter 3 says. But just because justice hasn't happened yet in a lot of situations doesn't mean it won't. We must live our lives here remembering passages like 2 Corinthians 5.10 that says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so each may receive what is due to him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Take your sin seriously and do everything you can to avoid it. But when you don't, when you can't, when you fall, when you mess up, there's hope from this passage too. Because God is gracious, because God is merciful, he will treat us with kindness when we come to him and we talk to him about it and we tell him what we did wrong. Just like Moses did here and every other time the Israelites have sinned. He selflessly and humbly went to God and asked for his pardon and his forgiveness. Exodus 34, 8 and 9 is just one example in our text. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let Yahweh go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. When we sin, we need to run to God, and we need to get it right. We need to point number three, be honest and seek forgiveness humbly. Be honest and seek forgiveness humbly. The minute Moses recognized sin, he ran to God and he addressed it. And this word for bowed is the word prostrate. And prostrate means to lay on the floor with your face on the ground. That's what he did. Now, I don't know when the last time you did that. I actually couldn't remember the last time I did it, so I tried it. Um, it's uncomfortable. And it's not just uncomfortable because, you know, you're not putting your head on your elbow or putting your cheek down, because being prostrate is putting your face, your forehead, on the ground. And not like in your fluffy bed at night, in your PJs, telling God you're going to pray, oh, I'm sleeping. It's not that. Putting your nose to the ground it's not just uncomfortable physically, it's uncomfortable emotionally. Because in that moment, you realize who you are and who he is. It's very humbling. You remember that you are the creature and he's the creator. Especially when you're doing this because you're wanting to tell him what you've done wrong. And you remember all the things we learned so far of how gracious and merciful he is. And compared to you and what you've done and what you're telling him, it's bad news. It's very humbling. But it does put us in the right frame of mind to confess. To be humble like that, but also to be thankful. I mean, you're laying on the ground. You're, you're thankful for the forgiveness that God has given you. In the Lord's Prayer... 
It's called adoration. We talk about it with that ACTS acronym. And adoration comes before confession. It's because in the Lord's Prayer, he does say, yes, forgive us our sins. But it's long after he said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Worship and adoration should come first. And then we should pour out what we have done to God. And I would recommend a posture of humility. It doesn't have to be face down on the ground. It could be on your knees with your head to the ground. I had some a gal tell me, I can't get up. Okay, I get it. I, I have to say I, it was harder to get up than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> but um, do it on your knees and put your head to the ground. Same effect. Some humility. Now, that posture of humility, we're looking for us to have that sense of an attitude of lowliness, knowing our status before a holy God, knowing, like I said, that we are the creature and he is the creator. And honestly, that's the way we should approach him every time we have a request, not just when we're trying to be forgiven for something we've done wrong, but every time. Then in verse 9, it says, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let Yahweh go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And... Moses appeals to God's favor and grace. He says, remember all that stuff you just told us? I'm going to cash in on that now. Be gracious. Be good. Forgive me, please. And uh, the first thing he asks for is for him to go with him, for God to go with them. But this, frankly, this is the third or fourth time he said that. He's kind of beating a dead horse here. And God's already told him they're going. Uh, why doesn't God call him on it? I don't know. I don't know, but I can tell you that Moses had probably one of the hardest jobs in all your Bible. I know that he didn't have a Bible. He was writing it, right? One book so far, a lot, lot, lot of Bible he had, no church, no pastor. His job was to wrangle two million stiff-necked people, and God has said he's not going with them. He had a pretty rough life, so I'm not sure I'm going to... God knew his heart. That's all I can say. I don't know why Zechariah is mute for pushing a year. Because he questioned God and didn't just believe what God said. And why the disciples are rebuked in the boat. And Moses wasn't. I don't know. But I do know that I'm thankful that God is gracious and merciful. And I do know that I'm thankful for the time that God doesn't spank me when I do the same thing, it's just another proof that God is who he says he is, gracious and merciful. Then Moses reminds God, you've given me a challenging and stiff-necked people here that I'm dragging behind me. I love the image Bethany gave us last time of the oxen being forced into the yoke, and he just didn't want to go. He's refusing to go, right? Such a good image. I think I'm going to have that for a very long time in my mind. And we are all quick to go, yep, God, look at those Israelites. They're so bad and stiff-necked. When we kind of need to make a U-turn sometimes and realize that we can be stiff-necked as well. Um, we know that we should be about ourselves less and others more, but we're not. We know we shouldn't worry, but we do. We know we should love God first, but our bank accounts and our calendars don't reflect that. 
We know we should let our husband lead, but when it comes to vacation or parenting, interior decorating, or finances, well, we just don't want the role God gave us. We can be stiff-necked as well, right? We are quick to blame the world, our husbands, our circumstances, maybe even God, when we are the ones to blame. James 4.17 puts it like this, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it to him, it is sin. Ugh. We need to humble ourselves and do things God's way and ask his forgiveness when we don't. Now, Moses asks for a pardon. He asks them to forgive their stubbornness and release the debt. And Moses is so humble that he even says to them, wow, he says, forgive us our iniquity. Wait, our iniquity? Moses was up on the mountain with God. He had nothing to do with the golden calf that he so loves and identifies with these people that he says, forgive our iniquity. I'm not sure that we would be so quick to throw ourselves on that pile, would we? And then he says, treat them like they're your inheritance or your people again. Take them back. And it's exactly what God did. He does it because a humble man came to him respectfully and took the blame and got honest. He didn't expect God to know what he was thinking or what he had done wrong, or what he wanted, he told him, we need to too. We need to take responsibility and ask him to release our debt. First John 1, 9 promises he will, right? When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there are lots of examples of humble people that repent and get right with God. We especially like the ignorant, sinning people, like Josiah, who they find the book of the law, and he goes, oh, I didn't know. We were disobeying God, and he repents, and God forgives him. We're like, yeah. It's harder when it's the on purpose. I sinned on purpose, guys. How about David? Fully on purpose. Oh, we like to just gloss that one over because he's the man after God's own heart. He did a heinous sin, and actually a whole bunch of them, one after the other. But when he repented, God forgave him, right? We're not so quick to be so kind to King Ahab, frankly. First King describes King Ahab like this. First Kings 21, 25, and 26. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted abominably in going after idols. Ahab was so horrible, in fact, that in this particular incident in 1 Kings 21, he goes and he sets up a guy to be falsely accused of a crime and stoned to death in his presence because he wants the guy's one possession, his vineyard. Because Ahab is fancied himself to have his own vegetable garden, and he wants it. Well, God sends Elijah to Ahab to tell him, you've messed up. Here's the discipline I'm going to give you and your wife and your family because he's done a lot of things. And all of a sudden, Ahab rips his clothes and despairs and fasts and prays, and we're like, yeah, right. Well, God isn't, yeah, right. God responded to his repentant heart, and he didn't have him be disciplined for three more years until his death. What? God is gracious and merciful. And when even a guy like that repented, God was kind. As he is with so many of us, how long did it take us to get it right? 
Now, I am not saying that Ahab's going to have a place in the New Jerusalem next to us. That's above my pay grade, but <clears throat> I do know that God responded to his repentant heart because he was gracious and merciful. God takes us back even when we sin on purpose, again and again and again, because he's good. If we honestly confess, Isaiah 57, 15 says this, for thus says the Holy One, who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So my suggestion to you is to be like the sheep, the sheep that I heard about this week, who the farmer had escaped his yard. The sheep and the pig, they were friends, and they leaned up against the fence that was weak, a fence post that was weak, and they leaned up against it, and they leaned up against it, and they leaned up against it until they made it fall over, crash, and they escaped. Ha <laughs> ha And they were off exploring. The farmer discovered they were, had disappeared and went after them, but they had kind of a head, pretty big head start, so uh, they got a pretty long ways before he caught up to them. On the second day, the farmer was out there and he could hear the sheep bleeding pathetically. <laughs> and he went running to the sheep and he found the sheep and the pig in a big muddy swamp, stuck. Now, the pig, he was having the time of his life. Woohoo! this is awesome. Doing a bowl of mud bath. But the sheep, was pathetically sitting there. Help me, help me, farmer. And uh, I'm stuck, rescue me, save me, get me out of here, clean me up. And here's the farmer's lesson or moral for us all. When you find yourself deceived by sin and you're overtaken, go at once to the compassionate savior. Tell him of your sin, how sorry you feel. Ask him to wash you and to restore you. Be a sheep who seeks him out and not a pig who doesn't. Proverbs 28, 13 is clear. Whoever confesses his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The minute you realize your sin, you need to run to him and make it right and say something as simple as, I did this. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Help me not to do it again. It's so simple. It only, we say this all the time at my house, it only takes a second to get right with God. It's very simple. I didn't have to do any song and dance. That's it. God will restore you and forgive you, even if you have to suffer some discipline, because Hebrews 12 tells us we are given discipline by our good Father so we can be more fruitful. Praise the Lord, even for discipline. And then ask for his help to stop it, whatever it is you're facing Here's some promises for you. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 said, his grace is sufficient. We only think of that in trial, but sometimes trial is fighting sin, isn't it? His grace is sufficient for you in that too. 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. It means God, his Holy Spirit who lives inside you, he is greater than any sin you're gonna face and have to fight. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you know this one about your sin. He has given you what it takes to say no to any temptation you have. Ask him for help. Get help from other people. Memorize verses. We talked about at the retreat, making sure you have the right bullet in your gun so that you can deal with worry or whatever your temptation to sin is. 
Confess honestly and seek forgiveness humbly and he'll give it. Now, the Sistine Chapel is one of the most precious art treasures in the world. And it was painted by Michelangelo over a four-year period, and it was finished in 1512. And it has been used almost every day of those over 400 years. But it was made in a time when there was no electricity, and so candles would light the Sistine Chapel. And over those almost 400 years of candle light, soot and grime and dust has accumulated on that beautiful ceiling that Michelangelo painted there. Until in 1984, they sent it a team of restorative artists to clean it up. It took 15 years for them to go every piece systematically across the entire ceiling and clean it up. Now, before this time, people had thought Michelangelo, he is a genius when it comes to composition. I mean, think of the imagination it takes to paint Adam reaching for God, only to have God's hand already extending down to him. Breathtaking. But frankly, most people thought Michelangelo could use a little help in the color department. You know, it's kind of dark and drab and monochromatic. It's a lot of grayscale. Until they cleaned it up. And then they saw the brilliant colors that he had chosen. The vivid yellow, the apple green, the pale pinks, the pearly gray, the sky blue. And they realized it was just hidden, hidden away under the dust and grime. And you know, you and I walk around on this planet getting dirty, dusty, grimy, sooty by the sin that we commit. We're discolored, we're disfigured, and we need God to clean us up. We are made in the image of God. Spectacular. Then we're made a new creation, but it's hidden. We need him to come, and we need him to restore us. We need him to wipe it all away. We need to come all the time so it never builds up, and so we can be the beauty that he has designed us to be. If you've never done that for the first time, and you're like, what in the world is she talking about? Make sure you talk to someone at small group. You need to turn from your sin today and be forgiven. Get the precious gift we've been talking about this whole day. Be forgiven for everything you've ever done. Get the get out of jail free card. But if you're a real Christian here today, keep going back to him. Don't be afraid. He is merciful. He is gracious. We need to be grateful. We need to be warned. And we need to be honest. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I literally do not know what better gift you could ever have given us than the gift of forgiveness, of releasing our debt. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I, I pray for myself and my sisters here that we would spend more time thanking you for, yes, the gift of getting to reside with you in heaven forever, but also the everyday, the new mercies forgiveness we receive all the time. Help us to be quick to say no to sin so we don't have to spend much time being honest and confessing humbly to you. That we're just blown away by the precious gem that you put in the midst of this very ugly story. Thank you for sharing this truth about yourself, God. Thank you for showing us, pulling the curtain back and showing us who you really are. 
We so love you, God, and we're so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed to your groups.